Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works and I'm your host, Kim Borrowdale. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the beautiful lands wherever you're listening and of our guests today. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who has been impacted by suicide, acknowledge the pain it brings to our lives and the desire to make positive change for us all to live well. Today's episode is all about suicide prevention in healthcare professions. How can we better support those working in health to build skills and understanding when it comes to suicide prevention for patients and their families? And what about health workers themselves? How do we find the balance between education and ensuring they have the skills to save lives in a compassionate way while also helping to support their personal mental well-being? I'll be talking today with Che Mei Long, President of Singapore Association of Social Workers, May has been instrumental in strengthening suicide prevention in Singapore through increasing the number of professional trained in these skills, as well as advocating for suicide first aid training as part of institutional learning and development. Welcome, May. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Dr. Jacqueline Smith, Assistant Professor and Director of Mental Health and Wellness for the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Calgary in Canada. Dr. Smith is particularly passionate about the value of suicide education in the healthcare field, especially in nursing, where interaction with people is all about relationships and understanding the social determinants of health for individuals and their families. Thanks for joining us, Jacqueline. Thank you, Kim. So first of all, for our listeners, I think I'd be really interested in just hearing a little bit more about yourselves, about your professional background, and what's your why? Why focus on suicide prevention? Perhaps if we can start with you, Jacqueline. Okay. Well, thanks, Kim. It's really great to be here. And and as the Director of Mental Health and Wellness in the Faculty of Nursing, there's certainly an understanding that psychological health and safety in the workplace is as a priority. And I'm really proud that this new position that I was asked to take on about a year ago came from our Dean of Nursing, Dr. Sandra Davidson, who's a strong advocate of mental health and wellness, as is our University of Calgary in general. We actually have a a campus mental health strategy, and it's um, the intention is to build a community of caring where talking about mental health and well-being is encouraged and that stigma around mental illness is reduced and support is assured. So for the community in general. And I think there's something really unique about the university setting. And there's just innate um, tensions and stress for, I think, faculty, staff, and students. So in my position, I'm supporting the psychological health and safety of faculty, staff, and students. And 
As a nurse, I also worked in a pediatric emergency department prior to becoming an academic. And unfortunately, I witnessed a lot of mental distress, suicides, and distressed individuals and families as well. And I'm just really encouraged by this conversation and this podcast today because I think what we need to do is we need to talk publicly about the issues uh, globally with mental health and um, mental illness, mental health, wellness, I mean, all of that. And within Canada, one in five Canadians uh, will experience mental illness within their lifetime. So this is a significant issue. And for some reason, we have a double standard. These physical health issues seem to be a priority and a mental health um, suffers. So I think this open public conversation is so important. And I think nurses work with a vulnerable population. When we're talking about the social determinants of health, I mean, people who are ill are positioned as being vulnerable. And I really appreciate the fact that you highlighted nurses taking care of patients and families in a healthcare setting. But just by nature of our work, nurses have also become vulnerable to that environment and to the stress uh, that comes along with it. And there are a number of studies coming out right now that are positioning nurses with high psychological distress. So I'm thrilled with the opportunity to talk more about ASSIST and how we're positioning it within our faculty. So thank you. Great, thank you. We'll come back to that in more detail because I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts on those risk factors and vulnerabilities as a profession and um, what you're doing about uh, supporting people with that. And May, tell us a bit about your background and um, work at the moment. Right. I'm a social worker by training. And for the first part of my work, I was initially working in uh, Ministry of Defence and uh, the clientele then was national servicemen yeah, uh, who have to serve in the army. And we men hotline. And even in that piece of work, uh, I suppose that was my early exposure as a social worker uh, in terms of uh, coming across people who, who have thoughts of suicide and things like that. Of course, subsequently, the large part of my career has in a way been in the healthcare. And of course, right now, as I'm speaking with you as a president of uh, Singapore Association of Social Workers. So for me, I am often uh, concerned about how the group of the fraternity of social workers and when the profession of, uh, it's a helping profession to also attend to people with needs and mental health issues. And when I was working, heading a department of medical social workers, every day we receive reference about people uh, attempting suicide and things like that. So it was important to ensure that my team of uh, staff then to be more equipped with this topic and to be more confident. And so this was how I was, you know, personally having this wish to build a community of caregivers, uh, depending whichever background they are from. And I think the ASSIST, I came across ASSIST and I think this is a, a, a wonderful program. It's about suicide first aid. And even in healthcare, nurses, social workers, doctors, would need it. So in a way, I have been using my connection and influence to try to have more people uh, be more equipped in this so that we can reach out to people in the community. Yeah. 
That's great. And both nurses and social workers, I mean, those professions work across so many different cross-sections of the community, different roles. As you said, you were talking about, um, May, about starting in the defence system. One of our podcasts is talking about retired and active service personnel and lots and lots of complex issues to discuss there and let alone people, patients coming into just the regular emergency department and nurses facing any range of issues. So how do you, in terms of education, have you seen a shift in your profession's training in these sort of things and understanding the risk factors and protective factors when it comes to suicide and the complexity of it in terms of who they're coming across each day in their professions? Jacqueline, maybe you'd like to start? Sure. sure. I have to say I've been in the profession for probably 35 plus years. And it's unfortunate that we haven't had direct training as nurses in assist. And it always seems that the mental health rotation is always an option. And as a result, our nurses are, are not, I don't think, adequately prepared for what they're seeing. And I mean, we're in the midst of a global pandemic now, like incredible stress. Uh, We're experiencing a mental health crisis and there's no better time. Again, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that I think it was back in 2016, our university formally adopted a campus mental health strategy. So back in 2018, the Faculty of Nursing formally adopted the campus mental health strategy. So we then became very invested. Now, a really exciting thing that happened is one of our nurses, so we have lots of different grant opportunities at the university for undergraduate nursing students as well. One of our undergraduate nursing students had an experience where a friend had suicidal ideation and it really alarmed her and she felt ill-prepared but yet did everything that she should have. And after that experience, she decided to apply for a grant to look at bringing the assist training into the undergraduate nursing program doing a bit of a pilot. And many applications come into this and she was awarded this grant was $55,000 and it was to deliver assist to undergraduate nursing students. So that's when I became involved because the Dean asked me to support this and we set it all up. So we were running sessions with 30 students and it was a two day session on the weekend and just really successful. And the students were saying like, wow, So the Center for Suicide Prevention uh, was quite involved with all of this. We approached them and said, we are very impressed with what's happening with this grant and we would like to evaluate it. Well, they were, wow, research? You you want to partner like an institution, an educational institution? So they were quite excited. So what happened is we went back to the campus mental health strategy. They invested just under $10,000 to help us with that. And we are now using that original grant money to evaluate it. So in the middle of all of this, when COVID hit and we started seeing an escalation in suicide behaviors and and concerns, mental health escalation, the city of Calgary, Alberta, where I'm living, they put out a, a call for grants and wanted it to support mental health and wellness. And so we decided we're just going to keep going like uh, things are happening. And we applied for money 
to have our nursing instructors trained in the ASSIST program so that we could incorporate it into the undergraduate nursing curriculum. We would have the sustainability because it's expensive. And that's another thing. It's expensive to go through this training. So so the city of Calgary granted us another, just over $50,000 to train four of our instructors. So that's where we're at right now. So it started with an undergraduate nursing student who recognized the need. The students were really seeing value in this. We approached the Center for Suicide Prevention. They said, let's Let's evaluate it. Our campus said, yeah, we want to be a part of this. And now the city does as well. And it was very interesting. I just want to tell you, the person who was overseeing the city grant, I had a conversation with her one day and she said, as soon as I saw your application, it caught my attention. She said, because I am a graduate of the University of Calgary. And she said, I wish when I was a student there that I had assist training because I saw a lot of people who were vulnerable and who were at risk. And she said, to be able to bring this into a university setting is amazing. So that's our story. So I got goosebumps talking about it. It's really caught the public eye. And and again, that public conversation is so important. And we're we're talking about a very, very serious issue. And uh, it's just really exciting. That is a fantastic example of that leadership model uh, with student-led, which is beautiful. For that to come from a student is fantastic because what better way to engage the student population than with another student? And for the university to then run with that and give you the time to be able to focus on it. And then beautiful opportunity with the city support as well. So that's really great. And I think that's encouraging too for other professions or nurses in other jurisdictions to actually take those opportunities to the faculty and to the leaders of their institutions because your story shows that that one seed of an idea can now grow into you actually having instructors on campus so that you can keep that going forever with every intake. You're right. And ultimately, our goal is that every nurse, so we enroll about 150 nursing students a year into our program. But our goal is that every nursing student who's graduating will also have a certificate in assist. And I know that our faculty has become a template for that campus mental health strategy. And uh, we're being viewed as leaders in this area as well, too. So, again, what better profession? I, and I understand social work as well, nursing. Like, we are healthcare practitioners. We are frontline workers who are working with that vulnerable population. So it's, uh, it's a thrill to see what's happening. That's great. And May, how did you first get involved in looking into ASSIST? And what sort of things have you seen in the social work landscape, particularly with people coming through into the profession? Well, in terms of uh, workforce perspective, we have many nurses, social workers. Similarly, in Singapore, we don't have so many social workers. So in a healthcare setting, often we base on certain referral. And the scope of our work as a medical social worker is to look at the psychosocial care and things like that. You know, when I hear Jacqueline talk about bringing it forward, I also had some attempts to and discussion in terms of and at what point should we be training our social workers in uh, mental health and also in suicide intervention. So similarly for social work, you know, when you're in the undergraduate days, the demands are a lot. They need to be equipped with a whole lot of uh, knowledge and all that. 
and it is an elective. I don't think uh, mental health is like a cost that every social worker has to go through. So subsequently, I find that it is more helpful. While some may be open, and, and you see the anger I come from is more so at a practitioner, right? In a hospital, we actually literally see people attempting suicide and all that coming in. So together with a group of the chief uh, social workers, we decided to put it in a training roadmap post-qualification. At least for now, we all have this agreement that we will be sending our social workers post-qualification, part of the continuing education, that you need to be equipped with how to work with family violence cases, you know, suicide uh, uh, intervention and prevention. And this is currently where we are at now. And usually also to be realistic, when we see assist, after the training, they need to, in terms of application, they need to be supported. And I find that for them to internalize some of the knowledge and skill sets, it is important to also have a more senior person to be with them, right? Because post-training, attending the workshop, we find that it kind of like sinks it in and uh, more effective in that manner. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, in Singapore, because nurses are also very busy, and in fact, they are really the front line, and uh, Living Works has also a range of programs. In Singapore, we find that the safe talk, in a sense, is uh, more receptive to some of the people because of the demand. So for doctors and nurses, we also conduct safe talk. At least start off with some interest and awareness, and because main of their main role is to identify, and then we can come in. In healthcare, we also have a lot of uh, peer support programs. In the past years, where many of us uh, in the are also trained in psychological first aid and peer support. And this is how we weave it into, in terms of the mental health and a group of uh, mental health professionals with the psychologists and, and all that also to support people. So in this COVID situation, we see a need. And in fact, a lot of people raise hands to uh, provide the national care hotline where mm-hmm. we are all trained in psychological first aid to man a national hotline because the whole population is being affected. And we, we know that they have many needs, right? Not just practical financial need, as much as the government come in to uh, provide uh, financial assistance, but the psychological well-being and things like that, it is how we put in place. And I've got feedback from the social workers and even clinical psychologists who have gone through assist. They found it very helpful in the role to mend the hotline and things like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's the journey we have here. And in terms of that role at the moment, May, are they also supporting healthcare workers themselves? So do you have social workers who are then supporting the nurses and the doctors at this time? Because depending on the coronavirus situation, they have increasing levels of trauma that they're seeing in their day jobs, I understand. So in a typical hospital, like I was saying, quite more than 10 years ago, nationally, we at the Ministry of Health, we were very intentional to grow a peer support program in every hospital. So we actually have uh, resources to allow every hospital to build that capability. And social work is part of that group to also support that program. So peer support, we may you can easily find a t- in a typical hospital where you have a team of peer supporters and we do in-house training to prepare people. So that in the event, whether you're a nurse or doctor, you then have a peer support program within it. And assist and suicide is, in a way, is another part of it, right? Because we know not all uh, suicidal people have men- are depressed and not all depressed people are suicidal, right? So this is where we put in place uh, different uh, schemes and programs to support. So in terms of supporting people who are right now at the forefront of uh, COVID, you know, wearing PPE and day in, day out, besides an internal 
support program, we also expanded external. You do know that people, because of, there's still stigma, there's still uh, confidentiality that people may not want to turn inwards. So we do have people who are, and that's where the association also have some of these contacts. We also work with other, other providers. Right? You want to encourage NGO uh, you know, who, who also have this kind of, who run hotline to also then extend. So together with our human resource, I actually advocated that when you publicize, you have a formal and also informal, just to reach out to people, whichever platform that they're comfortable with to then seek help. And I've got feedback that each time we advertise and not publicize, then you have more calls. And there are people who call in and to have expressed thoughts of suicide and things like that to be supported. Wow. In both of your countries, actually, I'm interested, not just your personal opinion, as opposed to a sort of an academic perspective, what the culture around talking about suicide and thoughts of suicide seems to be. Uh, do you see a good level of help seeking? Is it still a taboo subject? Uh, how do you think things have shifted in, in what you've seen over the years in both of your countries? Maybe Jacqueline, do you have any thoughts on that? That's a, a really good question. I think we're probably starting to talk more about it as we're looking at people like actors and actresses. I, I'm at a loss of word, but people in the public. Celebrities, celebrities yes. Where I mean, we're starting to hear more about celebrities. Um, and I, I think that's opening our eyes. And for me, I think people have to have some form of an experience with mental health or addiction or, or with suicide in order to really understand it. And when they start hearing other people's real life stories, I think it's opening up the conversation. It is for sure. I think, again, speaking publicly, like in the academic setting with, with our campus mental health strategy, it's very intentional. So when we start having programs that are targeting mental health and wellness and that are funded, we start to see then an uplift in, in that conversation. We uh, very sadly have uh, a huge problem with the Indigenous populations um, in Canada, and we're seeing elevated levels of suicide. So we, uh, we definitely hear more about that. So I think there's a shift. We're starting to talk, but there's so much more conversation that is needed. We do have organizations like the Center for Mental Health and, and Addiction and a lot of government-funded uh, programs as well, too. And uh, it's about, I think May said this as well, it's about prioritizing this. Instead of making this an optional subject, we have to elevate it and look at its reality and how it's taking people in our population, in, in our workplace, and in our communities, in our countries. So I think the more we talk about it, the more accepted it will become. And it's, it's having to really look at mitigating that organizational stigma, you know, the cultural stigma, the internal, external stigma. There's so much of that as well. It just needs to be broken down. We need to disentangle the complexity of all of that. And um, I think podcasts like we're doing today are helping with that. What are your thoughts, May? As a trainer, I am qualified since 2008. And as I conduct the assist workshops over the years, 
as well as in practice. And, you know, in Singapore, it is also in a way multi-racial uh, society, although majority uh, are from are Chinese because of where we are, you know. Singapore is an immigrant, we, you know. Uh, my father is from China. He came from China and he settled in Singapore. Now, so I've observed that over the years, although certain religion, they are against it, but you and I know that it happens across all ethnicity, across all religion. But the comfort in talking about this topic, I would say that I observe, right? Uh, it is better now. And there was once I invited social workers from Malaysia, right? They, they are uh, Malaysian social workers. And of course, their religion is against about this. So it's interesting to note that I invited them to sit into assist to say, okay, even in the comfort level in asking, are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of killing yourself? There's some discomfort even for this topic. Mm. Uh, but I, I think there's a shift and there's an acknowledgement. People are beginning to be more open with the generation, even amongst healthcare, even social workers, psychiatrists, we do know we also have stress and issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because of uh, the work that we do, they do at times need a break. So in general, more people are a bit more comfortable talking about and acknowledging that they do have, uh, they need to, they need a break to cope with uh, certain of their personal issues. And in fact, seeking help with other mental health externally, internally is slightly a bit more open. I see my younger social workers are more open about that as well, right? So, but I don't have stats and it, I, I personally did not do a research in it, but it's also very personal. And it is also helpful. We have National Council of Social Services. This is a, um, the council that looks after all the 450, what we call like your NGO equivalent. Uh, and they conduct a lot of beyond the labor, you know, trying to public awareness so that and all these efforts are very helpful for this to happen. And we need to continue this effort as well to make it uh, and maybe to, and we all have a role, every one of us, right? To mm-hmm. practice that and to allow people to see that it is okay to talk about it, right? And... So I wish, I wish us, uh, more of us can also be more openly talking about this topic. And uh, that's the beauty of this course about ASSIST, you know, to really helping people to examine their own attitude. And I noticed not everybody is really comfortable. And I've also come to a point, not everybody can be a trainer in ASSIST. Mm. So over the past years, we have maybe wasted, you know, if you're not clear about that, you send people and then you find that they struggle with conducting training in this aspect. Yeah. Definitely. And what you were talking about before with safe talk training, in the format of that, you actually do talk about some of those personal assumptions or values and beliefs that are sort of that are underlying in how you react to someone who may be having thoughts of suicide and what makes you maybe subconsciously miss something or avoid it, which I find fascinating because it really is that human thoughts and values in their whole social context that takes them into this suicidal conversation when you're a caregiver. So really interesting to go through those conversations in training. But I must say, even in, you know, in the assist, you have this segment about connecting with your feelings and thoughts. And I see in terms of the openness, right? People mm-hmm. are really, really in that, in that kind of setting, really, yeah. people are very comfortable talking about it now, at least in the group, right? So, so I'm just seeing that trend and I hope this will continue. Yeah. 
I agree with that too, that people are starting to talk more about emotional, you know, this psychological health and safety is the new language and, and you're starting to see it, especially within the workplace. So I think that's really promising. You know, it's interesting. I met with a team today because next week I am doing a presentation on emotional wellness and emotional regulation because of COVID it's now become a webinar And about a month ago, I was interviewed for it just in preparation. And there was like 120 people who had signed up. And I thought, oh, that's a good, that's a good number. Well, like today, there's 250 people who've already, who've signed up. So that was really encouraging because I think people are starting to look at how they can manage their emotional health and well-being. And, and ultimately, you know, I was looking up as sad as we were talking and Suicide is one of the top 10 causes of death in Canada. It is a serious problem. We do have an organization called the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and they're looking at it and looking at interventions, different ways of sharing that information as well, online, um, in-person modules, and training for just the general public and for healthcare practitioners as well. But and the bottom line is that, you know, the, the diagnosis of a mental health problem or illness is often what precedes the risk factors for suicide. So I think we're definitely seeing more initiatives to really, again, open up that conversation. And I maybe to add on, I just, as, as Jacqueline talked about it, I am also reminded that in Singapore, we are also slowly opening up and we do have like a community mental health strategy or a mental health strategy where we realize that you really need to have more people and train even uh, more lay people in, in terms of not just about suicide uh, prevention and intervention, but to identify the various kinds of symptoms and signs, right? And also, of course, we also are aware of other programs, but that with the community mental health, you need to reach out in the community. So Singapore is one of the fastest aging uh, society as well, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to be one of them. And by 2030, I'll be one <laughs> of those uh, 65 <laughs> and above. And uh, so we are urgently trying to put in place a kind of structure in the community. And I think this is one part that we really need to try to, I'll I'll still continue this fight to weave it in and use every opportunity to make sure that people are aware of this. And also incidentally, tomorrow I'm also talking about, we have a medical social work uh, webinar as well. And the topic is about leadership. Now I must remember to highlight this example that I did into the talk tomorrow. <laughs> yes, yes. And what about, so we're seeing the talk increasing. We're seeing the, the sort of willingness to look into our own emotions and understand how we're feeling. So how you're both long-term advocates for health and well-being and suicide intervention training. How do you actually take it from talk to systematically building the skills and confidence. So if I was a nurse or a social worker or just a member of the community, what do I do next? Like how do I take it from an active participant in society and willingness to building those skills? 
I, I think that's a really important question, Kim, and I, and I do think that accurate information about suicide is so important in order for us to identify those who may need um, the support. And, and again, I'm really excited that we systematically now, we are taking it into the undergraduate nursing program so that nurses can get that accurate information I think, to support themselves, I think, through the experience of of academics and their studies, and then through the work that they will eventually be doing in the hospital. So so the fact that we're going from introducing into the undergraduate nursing curriculum that they can use as nurse, as students, and then as clinicians, but also introducing it formally into the curriculum by training for instructors. So there's something happening that transfer of knowledge of that accurate certificate knowledge from the experts is, is I think, the key. And that systematic uptake as well, too. And hopefully, you know, when we're talking about a system, we hope that as a faculty, it will become something that other faculties want to take and will elevate the prioritization of this within our university setting as well. So, and we're publishing a paper on this. So we're going to, we're evaluating it. So we're going to document it and publish it as well, too. So and I'm a big KT person, so you don't just want it to sit in a magazine on somebody's shelf. You want to present it as well, too. So we'll publish it, but we'll also present the findings. And I know that the Center for Suicide Prevention is very excited about that possibility as well, is putting it into a peer-reviewed academic um, journal so that it can be disseminated as well and evidence-based practice or evidence-informed, I think is so important. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes that's the kind of academic credibility that is needed to move forward interventions such as this, as important as it is. I think it's been stymied a little bit by, like we talked earlier, stigma and all of that organizational, cultural, but we're, we're bringing it to the forefront here through academia. Part of the purpose of this podcast is to share these lessons from different jurisdictions so that another teaching faculty or someone interested in nurse education or nurses or social workers will listen to this and think, actually, we could do that. And where, or where is it in our educational process and systems at the moment? Because whether it's the start, like you said, or at the end of their graduate program, may like your social workers, where is the appropriate place? And if it isn't there, why not? What about you, May? How do you think people can take action to move from talk to the actual skills development? I'm trying hard to find somebody who share the kind of passion and vision and activation, right? It's not just about dreaming. It's about really doing it. And because I have a full-time day job and even this president is a volunteer, so we all have only 24 hours. And I'm quite uh, happy to see that because the program is also good. So from two solo trainers in assist, I have grown it after these years to have more than 20 over. Do we need more? And I, I'm very clear it's not just about the number. I'm also looking for people who can take this and, and bring it forward and grow in different sectors like what this podcast in a way is doing. Because in the school, right, all our children, is very stressful as a student, 
in many countries and in Singapore as well. And we really see young people, you know, and I think the school, the teachers, the strategy should be finding uh, champions at different mm. places mm -hmm. yeah. to believe in it and to want to do it and talk to people of influence, right? And from one, you can grow collective leadership and collective uh, action. And even to the lay person or any citizen, I have been talking about in the association, we have a training arm, which is the Family Resource and Training Center. And this is where from only one place to train, I have grown it into four or five, right? I was just getting the figures. So the earlier model and, and but I must acknowledge not everybody is into have this kind of energy or feel similar to this. So I will be still persistent to find identifying the right person who really believe in this. And I am seeing some hope in that because there are people who have gone through it. And I know people personally fly over because we don't have a local training center for assist. They actually fly to uh, Australia or another place to invest and do their own training. So I've been trying to involve these people. Now, I've realized that some of them in their own effort without connection, the, the, it will fail. You need to be in a community. And this is where I am right now holding that together and trying to grow leaders to spread that even further, right? Uh, but that will take time because in Singapore, I realized the model, we are all, most of us were full-time job. We can't take it further. You need mm -hmm. people who, perhaps when I retire, then I have a bit more full-time to, <laughs> to, do, to do this even further, you know? So I must say, I, I don't do the training as much, but because of my role and all that, but this has always been a part. And if we were to bring it to the community, right? Initially, I dare not advertise because I'm aware there are needs. The public also need. And the beauty of ASSIST is you're supposed to use this to train a hairdresser, right? Somebody, any a, a taxi driver, they have opportunities to talk about this. And in fact, I still want to try that part because, you know, as you do your hair one hour there, you know, there's a, it's a very <laughs> interesting time and things like that. So how do we spread that? It is still a constant thing that I'm trying to partner. And, and what Jacqueline did in the academia, right? There's room for improvement over there, but I need to ensure that the head of department must buy into it, right? Then they will grow. Yeah. But certain structure has its limitations because they have their own other, you know, it's so packed in undergraduate program, you know, everybody have their agenda and things like that. But I'm not losing hope. So I see uh, more and more people are interested in this. So this is where I'm hoping to really find the right people. I, I really love that um, champion language because it's so important. And, and Kim, what that made me think of is, and, and we're starting to hear more people share their personal experience um, with suicide as well, too. And I think, again, that brings it to the, the real life story. And I think that may, may be a really effective way to keep that conversation going as well as people have the courage and the strength and they've been able to, you know, let go of all that stigma and just want to share their story to support other people. I think that's so important. And I love that collective idea as well, too, the collective leadership and collective action. It's the top down. You have to have the buy-in from that leadership like uh, what's happening at the university, you know, we do have the campus mental health strategy and we have the Dean of Nursing who's really supportive of this. And now they've appointed me into, you know, the director of mental health and wellness. And so I think, I think it's happening, but I think that's really important, May, that top-down leadership as well and the champions and the real life experience. 
And I suppose for myself, I just took on this role as a group chief patient officer. I'm setting up my office. Give me time and I'm trying to, again, grow another arm of uh, influence mm -hmm. and let the clients and patients, and it's a partnership model that I suppose we can then uh, develop and make it a bit into a bit more formal. What you said earlier, May, too, about not everyone becomes an assist trainer either, that you know, sometimes it's about just learning your role as that connector to a social worker or to a nurse or to a to an assist trained person rather than everyone being an assist trainer. So looking at the different levels of interest and capability, I guess, in that structure. Now, even as we speak, I, I right now also am in contact uh, with the presidents of the allied health professionals. Now, I haven't done that to instill and interest these various precedents about this, right, to weave in. So as we talk, now this is very exciting as we talk, but you see from an idea, I need time to do. So currently for myself, it's just too many things out there. But I'll put that in mind, and, and this is how we start the conversation. Once people are interested, you latch on, go to the one who is more keen to fly, empower and support that person, then to connect them. And this is where... I suppose for me, it takes a certain attitude and mindset because I have heard some of the real stories. I think different countries promote or expand it in a different manner. Sometimes you have the ministries, right? I attempted that, but if you see in a, from a ministry angle, it can be at a ministry top-down, it can be amongst the community, it can be just pockets of people, but just grab whatever it is, and that's how you spread the, uh, the efforts and all that. My, the approach in Singapore may be a bit, I'm not the first to do assist, but I claim credit and, and knowledge for doing this and championing this. And as I go in my career, the influence also widened, right? As a president, I'm in contact with people. This is how grabbing the opportunity. But so, so I think this is also very important to really find a few key and then just spread that network. Yeah. So I will, after this phone call, after this, I'm going to write it down to also approach with the, have a conversation with the other presidents too. And I would, I would just add as well too, so as a researcher, there's a real push now to have patient advisory committees on any form of research. And most of my research is with mental health and addiction. And again, bringing in people who have lived the experience to be a part of the planning, like KT planning, anything that we're doing to have their voice in the planning, I think is critical is critical. We can't assume, yes, there's accuracy and in information, but I don't think there's anything more accurate than somebody who actually has lived it and who has experienced it and who can advise in the dissemination of that information as well too. So we can't overlook patient advisory committees. Agree. Yeah. So I'd love to spend all day talking with you too. I feel like I could. Um, but I think we might bring it to a close shortly. But before we go, I wanted to ask a final question about thinking about your area of work and fostering mental well-being and human connection, both from a workplace perspective and a profession perspective. What's one thing, one moment, one approach that you're most proud of in your work in this area? That's a tough one, I know, sorry. Well, Kim, I, I actually think I spoke to it already. It's that domino effect, what happened with it, starting with the student. I mean, so powerful to have a student see the importance of this and to have her get money to support it. And then to have 
the university look at it and think, wow. And now the city of Calgary has given us money to train our instructors. So that whole cascade effect that happened that began with an undergraduate nursing student is powerful. And I think representing the unique position of undergraduate nursing students and nurses in general and the importance of assist training in our profession. So I'm really proud of how that has evolved and the fact that it's ultimately going to result in every undergraduate nursing student having an assist certificate when they graduate. Amazing. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's so good to see that grow from that one idea. And May, what about you? For me, as I look back, I am glad that I persisted because there are so many moments that, you know, I tried at formal, informal, so many. And I'm, I'm proud that my persistence and that I'm patient to, to do this, did not give up, uh, continue to find the right timing, the right people. And mm-hmm. uh, the fact that I, together with uh, Lindy, you know, we uh, and collaborated with another hospital to conduct the two local T40, right? So we cannot... Initially, I sent people out, but I think conducting a T40 or with a dream now to still see whether within Singapore, how we can grow that path. So this is, so I'm proud that I, I persisted, I persisted and being patient and still did not give up. And I think that is crucial, as I said, the champion part. But right now it's involving more people for it to go even further. And succession planning too, really must find some people to take over this torch. You need multiple maze. <laughs> And this is where uh, I, I spread it out, right? And um, and I suppose I'm still very hopeful about this thing. So it will succeed. It can succeed. I do have some regrets that, hey, how come we are not as fast as other countries and things like that? But uh, that doesn't mean slow. We are not successful. So the sustainability is crucial, right? Mm-hmm. You do not want to see this uh, going off. And even when the champions, like in the seas, you know, the, the originator of this, uh, how they have built from uh, still always remember in was it in Canada it started this right so how it has grown into a, such a big community and is there anything else you'd like to add in terms of your experiences or advice you'd like to give to people I really love me I'm learning a lot from you today I love that language of sustainability as well too and again I will tie that into the conversation with what's happening so when we introduce it into curriculum and transfer that to frontline healthcare workers, we are creating sustainability because of that, that will continue then in their personal lives as well as their professional lives. So, and the fact that we have four instructors now, um, nursing instructors in the T4T, I, you know, in that formal training as well too, that is sustainability. And it's, um, Financial sustainability as well, too, when we invest in those four people who can deliver it over and over again. And my guess is that potentially to other faculties as well, too. This is a training that's not exclusive. Assist is for anyone. So these instructors will have the opportunity to provide training to all those who are interested. So again, I think that sustainability is really important. So we have to look at ways where we can create that and really um, move that forward. So I, uh, you're giving me ideas as well, too. I'm thinking about the sustainability plan. We've got four instructors. Let's share them. 
and share them with the other faculties across the university. So, so from two to 20 over, if one person were to identify one, you have 40 and if 40 bring one on, but it's not just about growing the number of trainers. So the marketing part of it, I spent I spent some time to to do graduate to, to pursue marketing management and constantly seeing how whatever training we have can be weaved into this aspect as well. So that is crucial. I'm quite protective over who comes in to become a trainer because I think that is really crucial. If we go from a profit making model and uh, if the quality is also not there, I would be very concerned. The program is good because. And I know it's not my job, but, but I must say I do pay a bit of attention trying to engage, almost behaving like a consultant trainer, although I'm not, but I, because of what I've done, I think that is really crucial. The program must speak for itself. Otherwise, the program, if the quality is no good and it gets diffused and no amount of this kind of conversation, it's not the number of people, it's the right people that is of, of importance. Yeah, that's all I have to say. Absolutely. Very good points. Thank you so much for your time and insights today, Jacqueline and May. I really appreciate it. I've loved talking to you and I know people will love listening. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you for giving us this opportunity. Encouraging conversation for sure. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review and most importantly, share it with your family, friends and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.